In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. This week, we're joined by Dr. Suzanne Wertheim on Money Tales. Suzanne started her career as a professor of linguistics. When a university-based research contract fell through, Suzanne's expected income level disappeared, dashing her plans to improve the fixer-upper home she had recently purchased. Suzanne got creative and pivoted to a new path. She decided to leverage her expertise by applying social science to the real-world problems of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Today, as head of worthwhile research and consulting, Suzanne specializes in analyzing and mitigating bias at work. She's a national expert on language and bias. Suzanne's popular online course on inclusive language is available on LinkedIn Learning and Cornerstone On Demand. Hi, this is Sandy. Suzanne shares many money stories with us. Here are three. First, sometimes even if we carefully plan, life can throw us off course. And while disappointing, it can open new opportunities. Second, how she was able to successfully build a team around her entrepreneurial efforts that supports her ability to generate revenue and reduce time spent on tasks she doesn't enjoy. And third, how budgeting transformed her life. Suzanne describes that before discovering budgets, she was reactive. And with a budgeting tool now in hand, she's proactive and has expanded her goals as a result. We're not surprised. This is something we often see at Experient. We use various tools, including budgeting, to provide clarity and peace of mind about clients' financial affairs. Please stick around after the interview because Cami and I are going to go deeper into budgeting. Now, on to our conversation with Dr. Suzanne Wertheim. Hi, Sandy. Hey, Cami. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I have some fantastic news to share with you. You're pregnant? <laughs> no, but that was a good guess. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I love it. No, Asperian has been awarded a really special industry award. We've won the 2022 award for diversity, inclusion, and belonging efforts and results. That is fantastic. I'm very proud of that. I am too, Sandy. You know, I was really attracted to Asperian back over 15 years ago because it wasn't a typical financial services firm, had a lot of women, women leadership, other diversity. I loved it. And it's been really great to see. And I know we've spent some time building out of late, really being intentional with our efforts in diversity, inclusion, and belonging. This award fits really nicely with our guest today on Money Tales. Suzanne Wertheim, welcome. Thank you so much. Suzanne has been consulting with us as we continue to improve our efforts in the DIB area. And I'm sure we'll hear some about that. 
But before we do, Suzanne, would you introduce yourself, provide a tip of the iceberg overview, and share a couple pivotal moments that really influenced you? My name is Suzanne Wertheim. I often go by Dr. Suzanne Wertheim because I find that titles help people remember to respect me. It's okay. Not on a money podcast. That's okay. (laughs) We can call you Doc if you want. Some people who I really like do call me Doc, so I'm down. I'm trying to decide if people I don't like call me Doc, and so far the list is zero. I am a former professor of linguistic anthropology, and I run my own company called Worthwhile Research and Consulting, a pun on my name but also a mission statement that says I only do work that I think is worthwhile. And I apply my academic expertise to help organizations of all different kinds do better when it comes to diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and make sure that their intentions are aligned with their impact. And I guess this is a spoiler. As we talk about my relationship with money later, I realized as I was thinking about this podcast that budgeting software that I finally learned to use in my 30s allowed me to align my intentions and my impact when it came to money. And the peace and security and confidence that gave me around money is in alignment with the kinds of peace and security and confidence that I want to bring my clients to make sure that they're really doing what they want to do in areas that have real impact and things aren't being swept under the rug that are going to come and bite them in the butt later. Now, pivotal moments for me. One thing is my point of origin, even though I haven't lived in New York since I was 17, can take the girl out of New York, but it's hard to take the New York out of the girl. So I was born in New York City. And then when I was three weeks old, my parents decided, like many people at the time, that the place to raise a child was not New York City, which was having its problems, but out in the suburbs, which was the aspirational dream of children of immigrants and grandchildren of immigrants, which is who my parents are. So instead of being raised in New York City, which I think would have been better, I was raised on Long Island, which is why I'll have big hair till I die, because I was raised in the era of the biggest hair. I could have competed with you. There you go. Oh, boy, did we have hair. I was the only person I knew who didn't use Aquanet. You just brought that smell back. And the haze in the girls' room. The haze as you walk in. The worst. Bad for the lungs, bad for my expensive contact lenses. (laughs) It was a time. I think a few pivotal moments. So one began when I was three weeks old, putting me in the suburbs when I should have been a city girl. So a lot of my life has been spent moving back into the place where I feel more at home. It's going to sound dark, but when I was two, I was hospitalized for about a month, most of which was in the ICU with problems that vaccines have now eradicated, in particular, epiglottitis and double pneumonia. So there was a trait kit next to my bed. I think back to how little parents were allowed to visit. I had a niece who had surgery at age three and her parents were with her the whole time. And I'm like, oh, I have literally no memory of my parents being there. My first memory is of being intubated and I'm probably 24 months old and you're not supposed to have permanent memories from that time. So it was obviously very formative. And I've worked this through obviously in therapy. I think some of the things I took away from that were that I had a really strong will to live. And a lot of children die from what I was hospitalized from. But I remember keeping myself alive and being very vigilant. And there's a way in which 
I think it created a core in me, which is that I'm responsible for my own safety. I'm responsible for my health. I'm responsible for literally keeping myself alive. I mean, admittedly with help, but nurses took me out of ICU prematurely because I was so cute. And then I got really sick and had to go back into ICU. Like there are ways in which the hospital wasn't set up to serve me. And so it's so strange, but I really do think that this experience set me up to be someone who was like, all right, I guess it's up to me. Another foundational thing isn't a moment per se, but I lived in New York till I was 17. And then I went to college in North Carolina. Since leaving New York, I have lived in a ton of places, so many places, North Carolina. And then I studied abroad in London. After school, I moved to Boston because I didn't want to have a car and I liked the music scene. Then I went to grad school in Berkeley, but I also spent time in Russia and Arizona. Then my academic career, I moved to Chicago and then DC and then LA and back to Oakland. I was paralytically shy when I was a child to the point where I would whisper, the stride right salesperson was like, hey, does that shoe fit? And I literally couldn't tell him. I would whisper to my mom and she would tell him. All of this stuff transformed me. My desire for a big life or an adventurous life or an interesting life or an academic job with security took me so many places that I became someone who could get dropped into a new place and figure out what's going on and create a life, get work, get friends, figure out what my place was. And that's instilled a real feeling of confidence and security that I didn't have for a long time. But this realization that I can just drop in somewhere and create a whole new life because I've done it a ton. It sounds like that's building on your theme of being responsible for yourself as you've evolved and grown. I think so. And also I'm thinking a lot lately about scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset as it comes in with money, but as it comes in with resources and as it comes in with yourself. And there's a way that for a long time, I had a scarcity mindset about my own capabilities. I think a scarcity mindset where I felt like I had to plan, 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 because I couldn't trust myself in the moment. I think a lot of my life now, both with money and with running my own company, rather than having a job in-house with a certain kind of security is a play between how much am I planning and how much am I trusting myself to play in the moment? And every year that I do my projections for the year, I feel that because I feel the terror. I just got to thrill through my body at the idea of, will I make enough money this year? Even just sitting with the spreadsheet and working it out versus the looking at my prospective client list and what's coming down the pipeline and being like, you got this, you're okay, you're fine. So I think a lot of my financial and other life is tied in with that play And that also ties in with, oh, I can go to a new place and I can plan enough to make it safe. And then I can trust myself to be in the moment and create new possibilities. So the scarcity mindset kicks in first, but then you're able to quickly override it with a more rational mind. Is that what we're hearing? I would say quickly override it is a very strong way of phrasing it. With very strong thoughts and careful introspection, I can say, Oh, is that your fear talking and your need to adhere to a more conservative plan that makes you feel safe? How does that align with what your goals are and what you want to be more expansive? A little bit like contraction and expansion, how your body contracts when you don't feel safe and your body expands when you feel warm and safe and secure and comfortable and you can really loosen up. I feel like I have that all the time with my money and with my work. I was just going to go there. How does your body feel with money? I made a plan and then something fell through 
And now I'm in a more complicated space than I expected to be. So I had a goal of buying a house, left academia. I was consulting during academia and I was like, oh, this isn't going to be enough money to buy a house anywhere I want to live. I wanted to move back to Oakland. I created for myself a really great job subcontracting to USC on a federally funded research project and being project manager of that project and making a lot of money, especially by my standards. A few years previously, I'd been making $15,000 a year for a dissertation, a grad student stipend. And then I was making more than 10 times that. And I was like, oh, okay. I took a gamble and I bought a house in Oakland that was a fixer upper because that's all I could get in the neighborhood I wanted to live in. They're like, buy a less good house in the good neighborhood you want to be in. So I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And I'm like, well, we've been guaranteed to move into phase two, two more years of this project. I can fix all the everything right up front. Cut to project gets canceled four days before renewal because a new director came into the funding agency and he cannibalized every project moving into phase two to fund his own pet projects. So I'd taken a gamble and then I was house poor. The way I feel about money is I've been scrambling to catch up ever since because I had a plan and it was a good one. And then it was pulled out from under my feet. And on the one hand, I'm like, objectively, I'm fine. And on the other hand, I had a vision for all the fixes I was going to make to my house. And now I can see them all the time. I'm looking out my window. I'm like, oh yeah, there's that porch I need to fix in ways A, B, C that could see right out the window. And I just have to put it off because of pandemic pricing and other ways that I had to rebuild when I didn't expect to rebuild. Can we go back to that moment when the contract was not renewed? What was going on in your mind and how did you get through that period? Because it sounds pretty scary. It was scary. I'll tell you what else happened. I had jury duty in LA. I got sciatica from a new lumbar support I put in my car and I was arranging to end the lease of the guys renting the house that I'm sitting in and transfer and set up the move. And then the project got canceled. So I was running project meetings during the jury duty breaks as I limped over to a bench. So to say that I was in a place of stress and overwhelm is, to put it mildly, I basically moved into very strong stress response mode. I was just very stressed and in physical pain for quite a while. And then I was falsely confident that I would find a new similar project what happens often is the principal investigator will connect you with other people. And it takes a long time to get those projects funded and in play. The next four chances I had, each one of them were shot down by the funders, even though it was with some pretty fancy people, way, way fancier than me. I kept on thinking, well, this one will come through with that fancy Stanford guy and that guy in DC. And it really didn't come through. And I had to do a full pivot for my work. I thought that I was going to be doing university-based research, applying my expertise in that way to build computational systems. And instead, that's how I started doing the work that I do today. I was like, well, what other skills transfer do I have? I built a lot of products and services around applying social science to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. So do you look back at this as a gift? I know from my colleagues, when they talk about you, you're amazing at what you do. How do you look back? What's the rearview mirror look like right now? 
I do like to mentor people, especially young women, especially young women in academia thinking about leaving undergrads or grad students. And so last summer, I had two interns who were finishing up college, and then I was invited to be on a panel for a group called Linguistics Beyond Academia, where you talk to people and give examples of, okay, I have a linguistics PhD or I have a linguistics master's degree. Here's what I'm doing. It was me, the guy who invented Klingon. So his stories were interesting. We have belonged to the same grad program and then a person who's moved into tech and is doing UX research. So it was an interesting panel. And I said, let me tell you what I told my interns who are very afraid right now because they were graduating with anthropology degrees into a pandemic in a world that is shifting every day. And I said, I can sum up my story in a sentence that sounds so coherent and kind of glamorous and impressive. And it's like, oh, everything was planned. I'm like, let me tell you behind the scenes how it actually went. The zigs, the zags, the failures, the blockages, the picking yourself up. But I somehow was able to trust myself and rise anew from the flames. I don't want to jinx anything, but I'm so happy with the work that I'm doing now. It's so aligned with my skills, with my knowledge base, and with the change that I want to make in the world. I would say it's a gift with the caveat that I really would like these things in my house fixed. (laughs) I really hate my kitchen counter, for example, and I'm just waiting to get a new one. And the answer is I will be waiting a little bit longer until uh, prices become more normal. As many things in life, this comes back to money sooner or later. Tell us more about what it's been like for you, Suzanne, as someone who is responsible for yourself taking big career risks where, especially in the beginning, I imagine, you're not quite sure when the next client's coming in, when the next compensation event is happening. I wonder if there isn't a genetic component, but I'll tell you, it wasn't that I was raised to do this, but I have two grandfathers who I barely knew. One died when I was seven, one died when I was not even two yet who both started their own businesses. One was quite successful, a doll maker, until the big toy company shot him down. My grandpa owned a doll factory. My mom and her twin sister were not allowed to have dolls in the house. So whatever child of immigrant mentality that was. The other grandpa, my dad's dad, started by pushing a wooden cart as a peddler over the bridge from Brooklyn into Manhattan to sell his wares. And then he ended up with an Army Navy surplus store. Both of my parents were raised in a way that I don't believe was explicit, but was implicit that they would need to support up a generation and down a generation. Both of them felt responsible. My dad became an engineer, slotted himself into infrastructure, mostly with aerospace engineering. So a solid job that paid well so he could support parents and support children. And my mom, incredibly brilliant, was pushed also into infrastructure. She was basically told here explicitly, you can either become a nurse or a teacher. Those were the options available to her. And so she chose teacher. She really wanted to be a geneticist or an astronomer. It turned out she was very good at teaching. I was raised in a household that was very dependent on infrastructure by others. And there wasn't talk of being entrepreneurial. And I have a few entrepreneurial cousins. And when I decided to jump ship and leave academia in 2011, I interviewed them. I went to New York for family stuff. And I'm like, let me buy you some deli food. And we'll talk about the two cousins in question have in particular strong New York accents. They haven't left. Let's talk about being entrepreneurs. They gave me all kinds of advice. So there's a way in which I think that in my blood, somehow it's like, yeah, you can do it. You can pull yourself up and do the thing. But there's a way in which I sometimes really miss the security of having somebody else to worry about everything. 
And for a long time, it's been me snout to tail, single shingle person. And I'm just now building a team. I've got a project coordinator. I've got research assistants. I have two mantras for 2022. Both work together and they're in opposition. Mantra one is up level. This is the year where I figure out how to market better, how to put myself out there more, how to let more people understand that I am the inclusive language expert. It's me. I am the person you want inclusive language training and guides and you come to me with the other mantra, which is rest because I'm exhausted. This pandemic has been exhausting and the inequality that has been made even more apparent by the pandemic really wears on me. And part of my job is soaking in people's bad behavior every day. So part of what I'm thinking of is how can I now build structures where I do lean on other people and hand things off and delegate It's not natural to me. It's not how you're trained to be a professor. A professor, you do everything yourself. It's not natural when you are a perfectionist, which also comes from academia and a little bit of imposter syndrome. One of the elements of imposter syndrome, which so many successful women I know have is it has to be perfect. And I have to have done it hundred percent by myself in order for it to count. So this is the tension that I'm sitting with, really trying to make time to figure out what can I offload, who can I trust, and how can I make sure that I delegate well. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Cammie and I, in the work that we do, we have clients who delegate to us every day. And that trust piece is really important. How are you getting there? How are you deciding which areas you can delegate to? How are you learning not to be a perfectionist who has to have her hands in everything? And what can our listeners learn from you in that experience as they think about their own lives and areas where they might be able to rely on other parties to help support them? One thing that helped is that I delegated wisdom acquisition to a business coach for a year. Ordinarily, I'm like, I'm the one. I tighten my muscles and I tighten together. I learned recently that gird your loins means take your skirt and wrap it around so you can fight. I always thought it meant like armor, but it literally just means take more of a long skirt thing and turn it into more of a short shorts thing that you can kick around in. But anyway, so how do you armor yourself? Ordinarily, I'd be like, let me go and figure this out myself. And instead I got recommended to a business coach and I talked to him for a sample thing. So he equipped me with some tools, like how do you plan out a week so it's maximally efficient and serves you best? How do you figure out what to delegate? When you have people that you give assignments to, so for example, I had a client that I was doing some work with and there's some work I don't particularly like doing. And I was like, wait, I must know people who like to do this kind of work. And I reached out to someone in my practitioner community and I said to her, hey, you're still looking for full-time work. Do you want to come in? Do you want to review the numbers? She goes, I love reviewing numbers. I hate writing reports. I'm like, I love writing reports. I love running the interviews. So there were these ways that I trusted her, but I also said, I'm going to have to review your work. And then I wrote the final report. So it was an element of enough trust the first time around, but making sure that ultimately I was the one responsible. My business coach taught me how to create a document that lets people know, here's what I'm looking for. Here's when I need it by. This is the model of what I'm looking for. So the expectations were very clear. I learned from my accountant that I can't have employees yet because California is very strict. So I'm keeping myself only to contractors. And one way I feel safe is my project coordinator, who is fantastic in so many ways. She's my former undergrad. And we kept in touch. A bunch of my students have kept in touch with me. They bring me in now that they're 30 and they're managers and directors. They're like, oh, Wertheim, she does this stuff. And they literally find me on LinkedIn. 
So first of all, I think there's a little bit of that old relationship where she's like, I really want to do good work for her. So I recommend using your former undergrads. That's super helpful. (laughs) Good advice for all of us. Yeah. But also she has a family job that she doesn't love that much. So she already has income. I don't have to worry that much. So I can be very slow and conservative in building up a lot of things that would be fear triggers for me because I feel so responsible to other people and their well-being that it's too hard for me to have employees. And I'm going very, very slow tiptoes into building a team and working in to see what level do I have to achieve of revenue in order to support people, even full-time, but as an employee and making that shift. So it's expansion and contraction all the time. I think that's the theme. How can I pull on the daring part of myself and say, here's what I want, but also be cautious enough that I still feel secure, that I have a good plan as I'm making that leap of faith in myself. You're bringing some really important elements First, there needs to be trust. This is a relationship. You need to be able to work well with the people that you're bringing onto your team, whether it's the team that you have at work or the team you have in your personal life and with your personal finances. There needs to be trust. You need to identify what your vision is. What are you good at? What do you enjoy? And delegating out the things that don't fit on that list. I think that's really interesting. And you're being really smart about it the comment you made earlier about budgeting, you have that in mind too, because all this has to be affordable and it has to help you progress more toward achieving your vision for your future. I will go one step further and be explicit. My business coach, who I recently felt secure enough, I said, all right, I'm going to fly free for a little bit. I'll get back to you. Because one of the things he would say is the highest and best use of your time. So he taught me to budget my week and I'm like, oh, I already budget my money. So there are ways in which the budgeting of the highest and best use of my time was already aligned. I'm like, oh, I've been running a budget for over a decade, multiple budgets. And so there's a way in which it's very much aligned to be explicit and thoughtful and proactive about where are your resources going for time and for money turned out to be remarkably parallel. And when you feel that you've got a cushion of time or money, it enables you to make a leap that you otherwise might not be able to make. What a great way to leverage this important tool. So I want to take you there, Doc. This budgeting software is really important and it obviously absolutely empowered you. It freed you. You talked about that in the beginning. Tell us more about going through the process, more about how you leverage this important tool. I'm glad you're asking that, Cami, because for most people, budget is a B word. They don't want anything to do with it. It's a bad word. I'm just nodding because I'm thinking of people that I've tried to convert to this budgeting software and it hasn't taken. My parents were born in the depression, both of them, child of immigrants, grandchild of immigrants. So there was very much a scarcity mentality when it came to money and also hoard. And if they come for us, we got to convert it to jewels that we can sew into the pockets and flee the country. People arrived on the shores with almost nothing and built from scratch. So there's always been a way that I was able to maximize money, but I wasn't being proactive about it. I was always being reactive and I had a real scarcity mentality when it came to money, which came to me very honestly through a lot of trauma. My parents were Eastern European immigrants and there were pogroms and there was the war and there was all of this stuff that led to the idea of contraction and be safe and hide it and stash it and make sure you've got it. If I hadn't moved so much, God only knows how much I would own. 
I acquired good things for very cheap, very easily. And the letting go was a lot harder. I was able to survive grad school where I made literally $15,000 a year in Tech Boom Bay Area. I was able to survive in part because rent was cheap at the time in the 90s, but also because I knew how to make money stretch. And also because when other people weren't working during the summers, I was out there making money, freelancing. I was freelance technical writing. I was doing book layout. I was doing stuff and making money during the summer to have a little nest egg to cushion me. You hustled. I did hustle. It was always about hoarding and feathering the nest, but it wasn't expansive. It was always from a fear mentality. What if the Cossacks come for us? What if we need to run again? Very literally, there was a time in the early 90s after I graduated from college where anti-Semitic rhetoric became so strong that I started thinking about how I could have a nest egg and flee and take my brother with me if I needed to. Like I literally was at that point. And part of that is a fear mentality that came by very honestly from the history of my family. And part of it was this saving and pulling everything to you as a basic safety. And it wasn't until my mid or late thirties that I found budgeting software. So my budget was make almost no money and then become a professor and make a little more than almost no money, but for regular people still basically no money. My first postdoc was I think $38,000. And I was like, oh my God, so much money. I really made that money work. I worked it so hard. You can't build a life on that kind of stuff. Especially in the Bay Area. At that point, I was in Chicago. So it went a tiny bit further. Not anymore. I had to learn to face my fears, face my anxieties. And I think it's around the time that I started meditating. So I think there's a way in which I had to calm my nervous system and face my fears and look some stuff straight in the eye and start budgeting. And I found this software called You Need a Budget or YNAB. It's the grown-up equivalent of money in envelopes with labels on it. And you give every dollar a job. I felt like I had finally touched bottom for the first time ever when it came to money. I had a clarity. Basically, everything was like, make almost no money, spend almost no money. But is that a life I want to live? Where my intake is almost nothing and my output is almost nothing? I want a life with art and travel and expansiveness and security and safety. And this isn't the way. For me, budgeting was unbelievably powerful. And it changed my life and my relationship with money. And I felt like I had touched bottom and I was able to, at a glance, open up my budget and see what was possible. And this is what let me start my own company rather than finding a job. When I decided to leave academia, I said, okay, I can take a part-time job and make this much money and build my own clientele the rest of the time. And so it gave me the freedom and the power. And then I had two budgets, my personal budget and my business budget. And then my partner moved in and then I had three budgets, the household budget, my personal budget and my work budget. And I still run those budgets to this day. And the feeling of power and clarity it has given me is unparalleled. I feel so safe and secure and every money decision I make is informed based on data and it has freed me up. I feel like someone who touched bottom and bounced up and now is floating up higher than was possible because I have this tool and this capability. I feel like we're floating up with you as you describe it. It's really thrilling to hear your journey. Budgeting literally changed my life and made it possible for me to do the work 
that I want to do. So I was terrified when I bought a house in Rockridge. If people know anything about Oakland, this is not a cheap house I'm sitting in. And then my income disappeared. I was like, okay, the budget is two more years of this incredible income. And then I'm good. I sock away this amount. I repair with this amount. And then it was gone. And I had to rethink. But because I knew how to read my money, how to control my money, because I understood how money worked for me, I was able to gamble on myself, live off of savings and create a new set of offerings and generate a new client base, network, do all the things. And each year I expand my offerings, I expand my client base and I get bigger and bigger to the point where I have a stated goal. I would like my company, Worthwhile Research and Consulting, plug for my company, to be a home for former academics and a life of safety rather than a life of scarcity, a life of abundance. And so the goal is to have a East Coast office, a West Coast office, a small staff of PhDs and people generating and running training and other kinds of consulting. What I know now is that it's premature to bring people on at this moment, but I have control over what my goals are and I can see when I reach a point and I can expand Instead of being in a place of contraction and fearful about money, I'm in a place of calm and expansion when appropriate and everything is data-based. I feel secure and calm in a way that the first two-thirds of my life to date were not. And then ever since, I feel great. I always have a clear vision. It seems like you've been on a very strong path to reaching your alignment and the impact that you're bringing. And we want to congratulate you on that. Before we wrap up our conversation, I want to talk linguistics and money. What are your thoughts? There are so many different words in our society for money. I tried counting them. There are, I think, over 50 words. Why does money get so many words? I spent a long time working on metaphor. So that project that got canceled that bought my house and then didn't buy my repairs was a project on computational metaphors, where we were teaching computers to recognize and classify metaphors in four languages. We worked a little bit on money. Basically, people tend to think about abstract things in terms of more concrete things. Money is pretty abstract, even though you can hold it in your hand, and especially present-day money. There are a lot of ways that we take the world as we see it, and we think about money as cheese, you know, like as a food product. Cheddar is one. That's one of the words. Exactly. There are just so many ways that we conceptualize or it's abstract and we'll think about it in spatial terms, like building a nest egg. Money is a home, money is safety, a security blanket, all these ways that we think about money metaphorically as something that as you get more of it, you are able to create safe structures and protect yourself from the world. For me, I think one of the most interesting things is scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset. That's a thing that I moved from myself. I've conceptualized it as touching bottom and then really putting everything in order. With budgeting, it changed me to more of an abundance mindset. It was a flip. And the way I conceptualized money was more positive than negative. It wasn't its absence, but it was building up to points of sufficiency. And I could, because I had this budgeting software at any moment, look at what was happening and what role I had assigned my money to and make it work for me as a tool. 
And ever since money to my mind has been conceptualized as a tool where I can see it and can control it, I have felt much more positive and much more of an abundance. And it's been a flip to something positive. And it's also enabled me to spend. So there are lots of ways that the metaphors and the ways that we conceptualize money affects our thought process because metaphors create scenarios in our brains. I encourage you, the listening audience, to think about what are the words you're using to describe money and what are the metaphorical scenarios that are being generated? And are those scenarios aligned with how you want to live your life? I didn't want to be an old lady with money in a boot, clutching it, dying, and nobody knew I was wealthy because I lived a life of an impoverished person. How do you find a balance where you feel secure and you have outflow that you don't feel bad about because you feel secure about your inflow. The language that we use creates our mental models. And so paying a little bit of attention will help you align your intent and your impact. Just like the DEI work that I do, I'm like, well, you have good intentions. How can I have the tools to get you have a good impact? I feel like budgeting is the same kind of tool that lets you align your intentions and your impact by having a real control over your resources. What's your next money conversation going to be? And who is it going to be with? This is so easy. We have a weekly household meeting, me and my partner, and I have absolute transparency about money. I tend to be a very transparent person. I run the money. I am better at running money. So (laughs) I am the one who controls the money. And one of the first things we do is we go over the budget Here's our February allocations, how our outflows aligned. I was able to take us to Hawaii twice last year, and I did a thing I've never done before, which is I burned our vacation fund to the ground. I'm like, I'm exhausted and I'm desperate for a good vacation. And I did it. And he said, why was this vacation so much better? I'm like, we spent all our money, but I was able to do it with peace and safety. And so it's our weekly household meeting with budget and we'll be transparent And we will co-create our budget and align on our spending and feel secure and safe with each other. And like our house is a safe place. Dr. Suzanne Wertheim, it has been amazing to talk to you. Your perspective on money is unique coming from your background, but also what you do every day and caring about the words and tying that to the feelings and what you're trying to accomplish. Thank you so much for joining us on Money Tales. Thanks, Suzanne. Been a pleasure. Sandy, what a great conversation we have with Dr. Suzanne Wertheim. The conversation around budgeting and how empowering that was for her was fantastic and fascinating and got me personally jazzed on investing in my own budgeting software. But when I think about our clients at Asperian, they typically have a lot of financial resources. Does the need for budgeting subside as your wealth increases? Before I answer your question, Cammie, I will say in my experience, when we bring up the word budget, it's a turnoff to clients. Budgets have a bad rap. I don't know what it is, but people feel constrained and controlled by them. So whenever a client shows the smallest sign of being irritated by the word budget, I'm going to make them listen to this episode so that Suzanne can sell them on the benefit of what budgeting really does. And I think there's some magic in there in terms of words that we use. We tend not to use budgeting in conversations with clients. We'll talk more about expense management. We'll talk about target lifestyle costs, other words that have more emotional appeal to the clients and less of a turnoff. 
that plays into some of what Suzanne was talking about with her comments about linguistics and money and how we tend to use metaphors a lot in language because we can connect to metaphors sometimes better than we can to actual words. All that said, getting back to your question, just because someone has a larger balance sheet or might have more income, the expense management process is still very important. One of the things that we do with clients when we start working with them is understand what their vision and their values are. What are they trying to achieve in their life? Oftentimes, that vision is based upon achieving or maintaining some level of lifestyle costs. We do a lot of long-range modeling to help clients understand their ability to afford that lifestyle. Some clients are more interested in keeping track of their spending by categories and being very diligent about how much they spend in certain areas. Other clients are more concerned on the total level of spending and aren't as concerned about the categories. From our perspective, what we find is as long as the clients are spending money in a manner that's aligned with their goals and that they're sticking within that lifestyle cost that they have envisioned for themselves and that we've done some work to confirm that they can afford, that's when they feel like they're in control and that they have peace of mind and they're not worrying about running out of money. You said so many things that resonate with me. What Suzanne talked about with this tool, money was put in the digital envelopes, if you will, categories. And it helped her know that I'm able to fix the home or whatever her goals were. She was saving for that goal. And so I like that you brought that with how we serve clients. I had a conversation with a client just recently, a couple, they want to buy a second home. They have the ability to afford the second home, but they have concerns that by spending money on the second home, that could be a slippery slope, that they're going to keep wanting to spend more and more and more, and that the spending doesn't align with how they think about themselves. They both came from modest means and they're uncomfortable thinking about themselves as people who would own a second home, especially in a very nice ski location that they're looking to buy in. So we had a conversation about that. Again, we already looked at the affordability they could afford to make this purchase and to maintain the home. We also looked at how the purchase aligns with their goals. They're a family who really enjoys spending time together as a family. They value time. They understand there's a lot of different demands on their time and they want to be able to enjoy time and be able to relax and enjoy nature. When we looked at the analysis of their values in combination with their ability to afford the home, they began to see it in a whole new light. And we talked about how if they really had concerns about the second home purchase being a slippery slope that they might slip down, maybe there's other areas within their spending that they could pull back on so that they're still maintaining the same lifestyle cost, but having the second home in their life. They don't need to cut back, but that's an opportunity for them if they wanted to explore it and if that would help them get more comfortable with this second home purchase idea. That resonated. They're going to continue to look for the second home. I think they feel a lot better about it. We did talk about some expense management plans to make sure that their spending remained in the same range of what they're prepared to spend each year. So budgeting and values, both are really powerful. And I think that's such an important topic for all of us. And I really appreciate Suzanne, Doc, as we called her affectionately, the emotions that she shared, that she got power and clarity. She felt safe and secure 
and confident. And then my favorite word, she felt free. I'm certain it will impact many of us going forward. Thank you again for joining us. And please email us at podcasts at Asperian.com. We would love to hear your money stories. We'd love to talk to someone you might recommend to join us on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.